What is the biggest obstacle to, to developing a discipline of joy? Quote, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. End quote. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 11. One of the most important things that all of those whom Christ calls blessed have in common is vulnerability. Think about it. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers, the persecuted, all of those whom Jesus names blessed in what we refer to as the Beatitudes are people who are vulnerable. The biggest thing that holds a wife back from making significant process in establishing a discipline of joy is a fear of vulnerability. Because at the end of the day, a discipline of joy is, in fact, a discipline of vulnerability, of intentional and healthy vulnerability. Time and again, the objections that I have heard to the discipline of joy reveal this deep, deep fear of that vulnerability. But there's another word for that vulnerability, which is most of the time no less scary, but seems more often to strike the right chord uh, with a wife striving for sainthood. And that word is surrender. I find that the dictionary definition of surrender is not particularly helpful, but rather the synonyms. What are some of the synonyms for surrender? Well, submit, yield, concede, give in, give one's self up, defer, back down, relinquish, renounce, forego, let go of, and sacrifice. These are just some of the synonyms or phrases similar to surrender. And in the context of human relationships, they seem not all that great, right? But in the context of our relationship with God, these words and phrases ring true, don't they? The well-formed Catholic wants to yield to God, to submit to him, longs to relinquish control to God, longs to give in and give everything over to him, wants to have the strength to let go of earthly things and make all sacrifices necessary to get to heaven. The discipline of joy is a discipline of surrender to God. When we surrender to God, we give him the room that he needs to bring us to our full potential. And the definition of that full potential is found in the Beatitudes. It is not lack of formation that makes an individual poor in spirit. 
that makes an individual meek, or that makes an individual merciful. To truly mourn, to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be a peacemaker, to endure persecution. Excellent formation of conscience and intellect is needed. The wife who implements the discipline of joy is living the Beatitudes. The wife who implements the discipline of joy is continuing her formation of both conscience and intellect. In last week's episode, I talked about backsliding in the practice of the discipline of joy. I talked about backsliding needing to be something that we look out for. And that's where I want to start today. What does a reasonable progression in the discipline of joy look like? And how would one determine if one is backsliding? I say all of this for myself as much as for anyone else. We all need accountability. And we all need to know what it is that we're aiming for if we're going to get there. I am accountable to many women across multiple support groups. I'm actually in three support groups for my marriage and two support groups for parenting. I need accountability and I need accountability from women who have the same mindset, who are working on the same things that I'm working on, who assume the same things that I assume, such as that the overwhelming majority of Catholic husbands are good men. Women who believe in surrender, who believe in submission, who believe in vulnerability being a good thing in their marriage. It is so hard to find like-minded women. And when you do find them, you've got to hold on to them and you've also got to keep up with them. It's great. So what does reasonable progression in the discipline of joy look like? And what does maintenance look like once that discipline is established? This topic, today's topic is very personal for me. Um, And this is just me sharing what has worked for me. And I think um, what I think are reasonable goals based on my own experience. So ultimately, it's up to you, the listener, to discern what's reasonable and what's right for you as you work to develop your own discipline of joy. I want to drive this episode with a quote that I recently saw on social media, quote, don't fear failure, fear being in the exact same place next year as you are today, end quote. You've probably heard that it takes about 21 days to establish a habit. And that's with the assumption that you are being very intentional about forming that habit over the course of those 21 days. But you know, this is incredible. If a habit takes just three weeks to establish, and there's a 2190 rule, three weeks to establish and 90 days to solidify. That means that your entire life, it still means that your entire life could be drastically different in say, just six months. And I really believe that six months is a long enough period of time to truly establish a discipline of joy. So what do I mean by established? Well, I don't mean that you will never backslide or make mistakes or even that you will absolutely never get into a rut that takes some time to climb out of. What I consider established to mean is that when I backslide, number one, I know 
immediately in the moment that I'm backsliding. It's not an awareness that requires hours of reflection or journaling or talking something over with a best friend to identify that I'm backsliding, but I have an awareness when something is off. And my immediate thought is I need to do something to fix this. Number two, I know exactly what I need to do to get back on track. That again, I don't need to spend hours upon hours coming up with a plan to fix this, that I don't need to test run 20 different game plans before finding a solid one, that I have a plan in place for backsliding. And I know that I need to get on it the split second that I realize that it's happening. And number three, as soon as I realize that I need to act, I act. It doesn't mean that the action is perfect. It doesn't mean that I'm always successful at turning things around within a five minute span. But I have, for the most part, eliminated both denial and procrastination. And I act because I know that I want to be filled with joy. I know that I'm at my best when I'm filled with joy. I act because I want to be at my best. I act because if I know the right thing to do and don't do it, then I have to go to confession. To me, established means a discipline of moving in the right direction as soon as I identify that I'm off track. So I'm going to go through each part of the discipline of joy. I'll talk about what reasonable progress within a six-month time span looks like to me, um, and hopefully that gives you ideas for setting your own goals and expectations for yourself. For each part of the discipline of joy, I'm also going to talk about how that part moves us towards a more complete surrender to God, how it furthers our formation of conscience and intellect, and I'm going to address the fear of vulnerability that hinders us in practicing that specific part of the discipline of joy. So with regards to the first part of the discipline of joy, which is rest, both planned and spontaneous, within a six-month time span, what does reasonable progress look like? Um, it looks like knowing <laughs> pretty thoroughly what normal parts of your day normally drain you of joy and consequently drain you of grace. It's having routines in place for filling myself up with grace, with joy as much as possible prior to those draining parts of the day. And it's having a go-to list or multiple lists of joy-filling activities that I can turn to when something unexpectedly drains me, something I could not have planned for beyond having a go-to list. Reasonable progress looks like not wanting to escape my life on a daily basis. Reasonable progress is destroying for myself any sinful illusions about an absence of joy being an absence of a source of joy and realizing rather that an absence of joy is an absence of effort on my part to choose it. When I first started working in earnest on a discipline of joy, part of that discipline was having everything that I needed in the car to be able to leave immediately in order to avoid or escape an occasion of sin. And this was after my husband, who is a recovering addict in a few different areas. This was after we had moved back in together following almost a year of living apart. 
and I'll bring this example up again throughout this episode. At the time that I started working on the discipline of joy, I had to have a bag packed to be able to drop everything, bring the baby up to my parents and spend the night. I'll bring this up again and explain in more detail what I needed to get away from. But after six months, what I want to mention here is that having that bag in the car was no longer necessary. And I have never needed to stay up at my parents' house for a night with that purpose of avoiding an occasion of sin ever since. What reasonable progress looks like to me in the areas of planned and spontaneous rest is that your rest is not there so you can escape from your life. But it's there to help you build a life that you don't want or feel the need to escape from. Through planned and spontaneous rest, I surrender to the fact that God created me with limitations. Mental, emotional, physical limitations. I surrender to the fact that God established the Sabbath to help me respect myself to help me respect my own limitations with which he created me. I surrender to the fact that I am not a superhero. (laughs) I'm an ordinary woman with ordinary needs, right? Disciplining myself to rest, to take Sabbath rest when and where possible, furthers my formation of conscience by enabling me to see concretely that rest helps me to serve my family better that I have a responsibility to rest so that I can give others the best of myself and that failing to take Sabbath rest objectively diminishes, objectively damages the quality of my service to my family. Disciplining myself to rest furthers my intellectual formation by forcing me to be aware of my triggers, my limits, but most importantly of my potential When you have seen yourself at your best, where you are loving life and you are able to tell your husband every day that you love your life, when you get into a rut where you've gotten away from that, you know it. You can't help knowing it. It takes vulnerability to admit having limits, to having triggers, to having shortcomings. It's easier to ignore those limits and triggers and shortcomings when, frankly, you are always miserable. When you have experienced authentic joy, when you have taken the time to fill yourself up with grace, you can no longer make excuses when you allow yourself to become miserable through lack of discipline. And this is the fear for many wives. Once a husband knows that a wife is capable of such self-discipline, he also becomes aware that she has no excuse when she falls into sin. He becomes aware, if he is not already, that this is a matter of self-control for his wife. I think women are afraid of showing their husbands that they can be happy, that they can choose to be happy regardless of his actions, precisely because once their husband witnesses this, they will no longer be able to pretend to place blame on their husband for their own choice to persist in unhappiness. Again, there is no longer an illusion that joylessness is due to an absence of all sources of joy, but rather that joylessness is the absence of an effort to choose joy, an effort to choose to respond to God's grace. On to the second part of the discipline of joy, daily rejoicing. 
What does reasonable progress over a six month period look like here? When I started working on this discipline of daily rejoicing, I found it difficult to think of things to be thankful for with regards to my husband. I think that what reasonable progress looks like is that you have no trouble thinking of things to be thankful for with regards to your husband, no matter how angry you are. This is one of the things that makes me laugh about myself now. When I'm upset with my husband, it's very easy now uh, to remind myself of all the things that he is and that he does, which benefits me. And it doesn't mean that thinking of those things always calms me down when I'm upset or that I'm able to flip some kind of switch and just start spewing gratitude when I'm angry. But it does mean that I can't hide behind the lie that my husband does nothing for me. I cannot hide anymore behind any kind of lie that my husband doesn't care about me and that he never thinks of me, that he never takes my needs into consideration. So reasonable progress in daily rejoicing is, again, a, a dispelling of illusions about there being nothing to be grateful for and realizing that if I do not feel grateful for the blessings in my life, and especially for those blessings which God has um, allowed through my husband, it is because of an absence of effort on my part to see those blessings and to choose to be grateful for them. Through this practice of daily rejoicing, I surrender to the fact that God blesses me through my husband. I surrender to God's design to make me in so many ways beholden to my husband for many things. I surrender to God's design of having entrusted woman to man. And the discipline of daily rejoicing furthers my formation of conscience by forcing me <laughs> to acknowledge that I owe everything to God and prevents me from becoming entitled. It furthers my intellectual formation by deepening my understanding of the fact that all of creation is contingent upon remaining within the thought of God. I see how all that is good cannot be without God, and anything in me that is good cannot be credited to me. Now, I just said that God has designed me and marriage so that I, as a wife, am beholden to my husband for allowing God to use him as an instrument of blessing in my life. And this is, again, one of those areas a vulnerability that scares a wife. When you start recognizing how much your husband does for you, you realize how much you owe him. And it's so much easier to just not go there. If you refuse to acknowledge what he does for you, you can pretend like you don't owe him anything. If you refuse to be grateful, if you refuse to see blessings for what they are, you can pretend like your husband is undeserving of your love and of your respect. The third part of the discipline of joy, living the serenity prayer. So I mentioned that a lot of learning to avoid occasions of sin in this area is learning to hold 
uh, one's tongue. <laughs> and this was really the main reason that when I originally started working in earnest on the discipline of joy, I had to have a bag packed. Because when I let my mouth run, uh, it runs and it's bad. <laughs> um, when I am upset, I have never been able to keep myself from saying disrespectful things when I allow myself to speak. So I need to stop speaking altogether. That's the only way to not say anything disrespectful. Now that that may not be the case for everyone, but that's what it was for me. And again, my husband and I lived apart for almost a year due to addiction and mental health. And learning to keep disrespectful words from coming out of my mouth meant at first that I had to be prepared to physically remove myself from a situation in order to avoid the occasion of sin and that I had to go so far um, as to have a night or two at my parents' house to sleep it off. You you have to discern what is needed for you to make reasonable progress and meet reasonable goals in this area. And also remember that each subsequent part of the discipline of joy builds on the previous one. So you're much less likely to be disrespectful when you're well rested and already full of gratitude, right? So with that said, what does reasonable progress in this area over a six month period look like to me, um, I think that, well, for me, what it has been is knowing the examine by heart. That's why I put it together. Um, such that when I say something disrespectful now, and I still do many times, often, this is one of my worst faults. Um, there's no illusion about having been accidentally disrespectful or not being able to help being disrespectful. When I am disrespectful, I know I've chosen to sin because I know instinctively what is respectful and what isn't. When I live the serenity prayer, I surrender to the fact that God has clothed my husband with authority over me and that that authority is not conditional upon my husband's character or state of grace. That except for in situations of objective physical danger in which the church would then support a physical separation of spouses to keep spouses safe, that my marriage vows place me under the objective authority of my husband in all things but sin, and that just because something challenges me or puts me out of my comfort zone doesn't automatically make that something sinful. A discipline of living the serenity prayer furthers my formation of conscience by forcing me to examine myself, forcing me to focus on myself and the work of removing the beam from my own eye rather than obsessing about the splinter in someone else's. It furthers my intellectual formation by deepening my knowledge of my many faults, of my many shortcomings, and requires me to grow in compassion for my fellow man, specifically for my husband. Living the serenity prayer makes me vulnerable to the imperfections of others, 
specifically those of my husband. And it's always easier to coldly demand perfection than to warmly forgive mistakes. I saw this great quote on social media that captures the trap that one falls into when one is not living the serenity prayer. Quote, victimizing yourself is a form of villainizing yourself. Because when you begin to think, woe is me, you become your own worst enemy. In doing so, you take away your own power, handing your life over to whatever happens to you instead of whatever you've chosen to do. End quote. And finally, the fourth part of the discipline of joy, which is what we just spent the last month covering, imaging God's imminence to your husband. The number one thing to remember here before we keep going is that of the four parts of the discipline of joy, which we have covered up until this point, this is the only part which is specific to our marital status. The other three parts of the discipline of joy just have to do with being a functional Catholic adult woman, but this part is specific to being a wife. When I strive to image God's eminence to my husband, I surrender to God's design for me as a woman, to be a vessel, to be someone who contains, transforms, and liberates. What am I containing and transforming and liberating? People, their intentions, their actions, their characters, their physical selves. I get so excited about this part of our calling because it is truly incredible. And if you have a hard time getting excited about it with regards to your husband or even understanding it, let's talk about how it applies to our kids to try and help that understanding and excitement. The scripture verse to which we have recourse in this area of the discipline of joy is Luke chapter 2 verse 19, quote, But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. When your child hands you a picture that they've drawn, if you're a very conscientious parent, you don't simply see colors on a page. You see the hard work that they've done to learn how to hold a crayon to learn how to press just firmly enough to apply the color, but not so hard that they rip the page. You see the evolution of their imagination. You see the evolution of their mental processing, of their working to understand the world. You see their hopes and dreams, maybe with regards to art or maybe with regards to the subject of their drawing. And you see their trust in you in making themselves vulnerable to you by handing them their childish masterpiece for evaluation. You see their trust in your capacity to judge them fairly and in your capacity to love them unconditionally. When you receive that drawing from your child, you have the ability to contain their person in your reception of their gift. You have the ability to contain this transformation within your heart and your mind that this is not just a drawing. This is representative of your child's formation up until this point, of your child's development, of your child's potential. And if you respond graciously to receiving that drawing from your child, you have the ability to unlock something within them. 
your reception of that drawing, if enacted graciously, can act as a key for your child. You can open their mind, you can open their heart, you can open their soul, you can free them just a little bit more from their earthly fetters and draw them a little closer to heaven simply by receiving their gift with grace. And the thing is, you can do this exact same thing with everything good that your husband does. In Laura Ingalls Wilder's book, Farmer Boy, where she tells the story of her husband's childhood, there's a scene where her husband, Almanzo, at nine years old, is asking his father for some money. I want to read part of that scene now. Father looked at him a long time. Then he took out his wallet and opened it, and slowly he took out a round, big silver half dollar. He asked, Almanzo, do you know what this is? Half a dollar. Almanzo answered, yes, but do you know what half a dollar is? Almanzo didn't know it was anything but half a dollar. It's work, son, father said. That's what money is. It's hard work. You know how to raise potatoes, Almanzo? Yes, Almanzo said. Say you have a seed potato in the spring. What do you do with it? You cut it up, Almanzo said. Go on, son. Then you harrow. First you manure the field and plow it. Then you harrow and mark the ground and plant the potatoes and plow them and hoe them. You plow and hoe them twice. That's right, son. And then? Then you dig them and put them down cellar. Yes, then you pick them over all winter. You throw out all the little ones and the rotten ones. Come spring, you load them up and haul them here to Malone and you sell them. And if you get a good price, son, how much do you get to show for all that work? How much do you get for half a bushel of potatoes? Half a dollar, Almanzo said. Yes, said father. That's what's in this half dollar, Almanzo. The work that raised half a bushel of potatoes is in it. Almanzo looked at the round piece of money that father held up. It looked small compared with all that work. This scene where father Wilder leads his son to see that that piece of money is representative of the work which has earned it is a thought process which a woman can train herself to enter into instinctively. You have the capacity to receive any word or action from your husband and immediately process all the nuance of formation and character behind that word or action. You can train your conscience and your intellect to become sensitive to all of that nuance. So let's consider what might be labeled on the surface as a negative situation. Let's say that a husband snaps at his wife. A woman can get very offended and choose to focus on how that was disrespectful of him to snap at her. But if she has trained herself to be sensitive to, to all that nuance, what that sensitivity might tell her is that her husband has had a long day at work. She might remember that he received a work call after he had already arrived home and that must have been frustrating because he should have been able to leave work at work and relax at home. 
She might remember that he's just had a promotion and has taken on more responsibility, and he's still adjusting to all of that. And to top it all off, for whatever reason, not out of malice, but it just happened, that she had dinner on the table about an hour later than usual. So her husband's reasonable expectations with regards to routine and relaxation were stretched. Is that an excuse for snapping at her? No. This is what we call giving grace. This is what we mean by giving grace to another person. We women have an incredible capacity for giving grace. I would venture to say a much greater capacity to do so than men have. I believe that God designed us women with this great capacity to give other people grace. But once again, what holds us back the most is a fear of vulnerability. Giving grace means opening yourself up to absorb the shock of a hit. It is precisely what Christ means when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, quote, But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, end quote. Not because your husband is evil, but because he is imperfect and will from time to time hurt you with no malicious intent, just as you frequently hurt him with no truly malicious intent. Giving grace can mean having to let go of something painful, letting it roll off of your shoulder. We are afraid of giving grace. We are afraid that giving grace allows others to take advantage of us. But this fear comes of stopping at containing others and not moving forward with the transforming and liberating parts. When you give your husband grace for snapping at you, for example, what can happen? Well, you can inspire him with your meekness. Remember the Beatitudes, to be gentler and to be softer with you. I can guarantee that you won't inspire gentleness and softness in your husband by being unapproachable and grouchy. (laughs) Giving grace makes you vulnerable and has the power to transform your marriage. One priest told me that marriage is the school of forgiveness. And well, here it is. Imaging God's imminence is all about forgiving your husband's imperfections. The discipline of joy makes us vulnerable to our husband in healthy ways. It is the fear of vulnerability which holds us back the most in developing this discipline, but I hope that at least trying to understand how that vulnerability can be healthy will do something to help you overcome that fear. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm -hmm.